So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today's Friday, March the 3rd, the first Friday of March for us. And uh, this is episode number 198 of Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I'm glad that you're here. Thanks for joining me. Things are not going great here in the northwestern part of the state of Pennsylvania, northeastern United States. It's snowing right now, right this minute. So the sequences that you saw at the very beginning uh, happened actually during this past week when the temperatures hit 50 degrees and it was sunny. So 50 degrees and sunny means bees are flying everywhere. Pollen's coming in. I have great news about all the hives actually. Uh, and my horizontal hives, if you noticed, and there'll be more, I'll, I'll put the full length uh, segments at the end of today's Q&A so you can watch them and just see what's going on and just listen to the sounds of the bees, some slow motion and some uh, normal speed. But uh, the horizontal hives are so strong, I kind of have issues with it now. So I don't even know what I'm going to do with them because I don't have another long Langstroth right now, but I need to consider maybe expanding my horizontal bee yard. Land's hives are strong, both of them, very strong. Observation hives, all three of them, doing extremely well. Outstanding, they're bringing in pollen. This is weird because, according to my records, I should be putting out dry pollen stuff at the end of next week, but now they're bringing in their own pollen already, so what's the point? And if you want to see something interesting, if you live in the northern United States, especially the northeast, and you live near wetlands, and if you're seeing a really fine, pale yellow pollen coming in all over your bees, look into skunk cabbage. A year ago, I did a video of skunk cabbage here in the wetlands and how the bees get in there, even on cool days, and come out covered in pollen. So they're finding it, maybe no need. So the reason it's a problem for me is because I wanted to test dry pollen sub. I wanted to test AP23 against Man Lake's uh, Ultra B dry pollen sub. That might not work because once they find it on their own, they almost don't care about it. So everything is doing great. 33 degrees Fahrenheit outside right now. That's 0.5 Celsius. Snowing, as I mentioned, 96% relative humidity. No big surprise because it's snowing and it's sleeting. So the relative humidity is high. The wind are pretty consistent. Winds are at 8 knots. So we don't have any real nice warm-ups ahead. That's why this weird warming up and cooling down is a problem this time of year. But we're going to get right into it. If you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description. All the topics will be listed in order, and there will be links for further study for those of you who like to dive deeper on the topics that are presented. All the questions were submitted over the past week. How can you submit a question? Go to my website, The Way to Be. Dot org and click on the page, also called The Way to Be. There's a form. You can fill it out. You can stay anonymous. Uh, and then it will be considered as a potential topic for next Friday. So let's get right into it. Starting right off, uh, this question is related to plastic hives. And it says, uh, mug up here, uh, New Hampshire, it's 30 degrees Fahrenheit, calm at 4 a.m. Yeah, I'm up early. We have two feet of snow pack, 6 to 14 inches, predicted for tomorrow. So I guess I don't have it that bad because our chickens are running around doing everything they want to do. March can be a snowy month here in New Hampshire. There is a question that I have not gotten a good answer for yet. What do you do with polystyrene or plastic hives? 
if you get AFB. For those of you who don't know, that's American Fowl Brood. It's probably the worst brood disease that you can get in your hives because there's no treatment for it, there's no cure for it. Is there any treatment other than radiation or burning that is accepted? Thanks for your time. Okay, so what I'm gonna say here is uh, your State Department of Agriculture always sets out requirements for dealing with different brood diseases. Maybe your state requires registration of your backyard apiary. Maybe it doesn't. The state of Pennsylvania, if you're a beekeeper, even if you just have one hive, you're supposed to register it with the state. All beekeeping falls under the Department of Agriculture. I know that there are a lot of beekeepers in different parts of the United States and elsewhere that don't want the man involved in their backyard business. But when it comes to something like American fowl brood, you have to really deal with it. Now, I've thought about this question too, because you don't want to burn plastics ever. You just don't. Puts toxins into the air and these toxins are terrible. So I, of course, went to the state and then I find out that my state is, of course, linked with the uh, Department of Agriculture Extension Office. The Extension Office references Penn State, which is Pennsylvania State University. And they do a lot of research on this and have guidelines. So the guideline is this if you live in Pennsylvania, and I would think it would apply in most places. You take your plastic hives, and of course, you have to have your inspector handy if that's their requirement. And uh, you definitely want to see what's going to happen with your materials, because if you have other bees and other apiaries, you don't want this spreading around. So you're right, you can't burn it. So what they suggest is that you bag everything up. And you bag it up with industrial trash bags. And that these industrial trash bags, by the way, which are three mils or more in thickness. Those, these, these would be what you would consider contractor grade, um, you know, demolition removal bags. Some of the more expensive ones, of course, are marked for hazardous, you know, hazardous material removal, such as asbestos. So you don't need those bags. But the three mil bags that are black, I think, are fantastic and you want to disassemble your components as much as you can so they don't take up a whole bunch of space because where are they headed? They're headed to the landfill. Now you might ask, well, isn't the landfill exposed? Uh, that's why you need heavy duty plastic bags to package everything up. Now, if you've got wooden frames and honeycomb and things like that in there, remove those from the hive boxes and those will go into a ditch and you're going to have to burn them and then bury them after they're burned. So the bees should be killed too, although there are alternate uh, potentials there, depending on where you live and what the regulations are, but you could do a shake swarm and you can shake off all the bees. Remember, it's a brood disease. The problem with that is you do run the risk, the potential risk, however small, that those bees will also transfer the virus to other colonies and then it, the cycle repeats itself. So what we wanna do when we find AFB is really wipe it out. We don't want to burn plastic. So the other reason that I think it's a good idea, and I get my heavy duty black plastic bags, three mils thick. I get those from Home Depot. You can probably get them from Menards or any building center that you have. Go with the industrial heavy duty jobs. And uh, they run about a dollar a bag. Here's another reason why those are good. You can if you're reconditioning hive equipment and it's got propolis all over it and beeswax and stuff like that, you have a really nice hot day coming up, you can put those plastic bags around that equipment because they're 40-gallon bags. I think some are bigger even. But you put these black plastic bags over your hive equipment 
and just let them heat up in the sun and it will melt that wax and propolis right into the wood. And this is not to be confused with my recommended removal of American fowl brood uh, infected material. But if you have wooden hives and equipment like that that you just want to melt down and uh, heat it up just as part of your reconditioning before you put them back into service, it's a great way to just let the sun warm everything up and it keeps bees and other critters off of them while they do it. Also, uh, the black heavy plastic bags are a method of potentially killing off a colony that is too aggressive, too defensive. So we also know that we can use uh, Dawn Ultra free and clear dish soap with water and that will kill off bees too if you have to do that, if you've got killer bees on your property. Anyway, lots of uses for the plastic bags is all I'm saying. But that's it and they go to the landfill and uh, they get buried. If you've looked at, and I have, Waste management, big surprise, handles the landfill around here. And uh, so we think about decomposition, plastics, polystyrene. We know that polystyrene has a half-life of natural decomposition of over 500 years. So it's just not going to happen in our lifetime. It is a responsible thing to be thinking about the future. These landfills are completely sealed up. In other words, to meet the requirements of the Environmental Protection Agency, assuming that you have that agency where you live, other countries in the world are what I'm talking about, uh, leachate, which comes off of the, um, the landfill and everything that's dumped in it, is to prove that that stuff can't get into the surrounding uh, groundwater and uh, impact and negatively impact the environment and pollute the waterways around a landfill. So they have to prove that they're containing it and they're controlling it. That's where your AFB plastic wear should be. Now here's the other part of that. Uh, what's the likelihood that that's even going to happen? Extremely unlikely. So that's the good news. It's a concern, but I don't even know anyone who's had it within the last 15 years where I live. There was an incident in the southeast corner of my state, which is more than, it's like a day's drive from here. So I think because the reaction is so complete, so dramatic, and so strong that we don't allow treatment, but we only allow destruction, and in this case with plastics, sealing and burying, uh, that's why we have it under control. So I hope that answers the question. And we'll move right on to the next one. Question number two comes from Eric, Newdale, Idaho. I know in the past you've discussed your use of hive gates for your entrances. Do you leave the hive gates in year-round or just during the winter and at risk for robbing months? I live in the cold northern climate and wonder if using a hive gate year-round would help with temperature control at the hive entrance during the winter, but wonder if keeping the hive gate in year-round would restrict the movement of foraging bees in and out of the colony during the more active late spring to fall months. Okay, the good news is uh, the hive gate, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, this is one of them right here. And uh, there's an update on the hive gate. So I also have a hive gate citizen science page on my website, which is again, thewaytobe.org. And if you click on that hive gate page, there's a video there that uh, where the inventor of the hive gate, Kyle, is uh, discussing all of the observations that they've made and they're bringing together the science inside the hive TV. Dr. Umberto Boncristiani has also uh, been interacting with the inventor of the hive gate. 
and uh, it's designed to stay on year round. Now, when it comes to me, um, I was one of the first people to test it here in the United States. And uh, the way I configured it is very frustrating for the uh, inventor. And that's because this hive gate is supposed to go on your bottom board, which I did, solid bottom board, so the bees can control airflow through this channel. But I also had a slatted rack above it. He recommends please do not put the slatted rack there because you need your brood box to be right down on top of this. The whole point is for the brood to be located directly over your hive gate so they get the maximum benefit and that the colony is then getting maximum protection because the warmth inside the hive, of course, and the proximity of this interior opening to the cluster means that they'll be defending right away, that robbers can't get in and do their thing. But there's also a whole bunch there about the thermodynamics, which, by the way, are pretty darn complicated, yet are proving beneficial. So leave it on. For those of you who don't know what that is or you just want to see the update, go to that page, look at that video, and see what you think. There's a lot of information that's part of the problem. It's very complex what goes on inside a beehive. So, yep, leave them on year-round. Question number three comes from Guy in Beaverton, Oregon. You mentioned the green drone comb as a method for varroa mitigation. Could I use it as an inspection method? A Google search says it takes 24 days to grow a drone. That would be true from egg to adult. What do you think about once every three weeks opening the hive to see if they are preparing to swarm and rotating out the drone frame? You could certainly do that. And you would be there in time. You would not be one of the people that finds that it doesn't work at all because you forgot to check it. So I check the cells for Varroa, let the birds clean it out, and keep the wax comb in place, assuming the birds didn't destroy it. Then rotate the frames in and out, maybe after a few cycles of not seeing any Varroa, let a drone cycle hatch. Is a 21-day rotation cutting it too close? Nope, that's a pretty good rotation. Not only that, 21 days is a pretty good cycle for inspection. So if you want to get ahead of queenless situations and you want to get ahead of the potential for worker bees to turn into laying bees, uh, three weeks is kind of the magic number. In fact, a little less than that would be good. You also mentioned that your bees will sometimes leave a gap along the side of their frames without comb. So they can move laterally without going under the frame. What do you think about cutting a half inch strip off the side of the manufactured wax frames? If the bees want to close it, they can. If they want to open it, they can leave it. So here's the thing, you can cut. You know, we've done that years ago. Um, I like the idea of drilling these holes in the plastic foundation uh, right under the top bar in the center because that seemed to be a popular area for the bees to leave a little opening that they pass through. Again, when they're going frame to frame across without going over the top, without going underneath, and without going around the ends. Uh, what they did is they like to choose their own holes. So wherever we tend to make a hole thinking, yeah, this is going to be great, they're going to love that, uh, they make drone comb there, which is funny to me. But... Uh, so cutting the holes really didn't help, but when you see natural comb and let them do foundationless comb, which means all you have is the wooden frame, the bees draw everything out on their own, and it's 100% beeswax. And if you look at that at the wooden frame at the bottom, where it's completely foundationless, they often don't even connect the bottom to the bottom frame. 
So they're leaving themselves a passageway within the comb, and then sometimes they do close it up all the way, but that's where they tend to leave it open. And again, along the edges, but it's very unpredictable. It can be low on the edge, high on the edge. It's fun to see what they do on their own. Again, though, like you said, if you cut the holes, they don't need it, and they build beeswax there. I've always noticed that they build drone comb, which is weird. Do you think they would just continue the worker foundation right there? So anyway, um, as far as pulling out the green frames, this comes up so often. This must be a really popular topic. It, it gets used for other things besides drones. So you're going to find out at different times of the year, they won't constantly fill that with um, drones so that you won't find a bunch of pupating drones there. You'll find that they start to use it for honey storage. So then if you've got half or two-thirds honey storage, and only the lower third of the left-hand side, which is usually the warmest side of the hive that they concentrate their brood towards here in the northern part of the United States. But um, so then you'll have a bunch of honey and, and you may not want to be taking it out and feeding that to your birds and your chickens or whatever you have. And some people have been saying, so that's reinforced by viewer uh, contributions, is that woodpeckers, that um, the tufted titmice, that starlings, all of these different birds come to and will feed on your uh, larvae for you. So if you're trying to feed drones somewhere, you don't have chickens, there you go. Wild birds are doing it. And I would recommend the same thing as I did with the chickens. When you set those out, put them in the same location each time. Wild birds tend to check where they found food before, and that's a good protein source for them. Now, could you also pull out the drones and count mites on them. A lot of people do that, they uncap them, it's a great educational tool. And it would be alarming if you started pulling out, you know, the pupating drones and you find out they've got two or three mites on each drone or in those cells, then uh, that's an alarm, that's, that's treatment. That's telling you that you need to do something else, that, that's, that they're not keeping up. And by that I mean this is your second or third time pulling the drone frames and you're still finding these big numbers. So the green uh, drone comb by itself, those frames, that is not a standalone control measure for the varroa destructor mite. It's one of many. So it's part of IPM. It's not the only IPM. But yeah, and then if you start finding that there are no varroa destructor mites on there and you want to have your genetics out there, there's no reason not to let them go ahead and take off and spread your genes to other colonies and those... Um, those virgin queens are going to be flying different times of the year, late spring, early autumn. And of course, they produce the most drones when the colony is at its healthiest, when it's at its peak numbers. So, and nutrition is great and everything else. It's actually a good indicator. Question number four comes from Scott in Rockland, California. Had a question on foundationless frames. I'm starting a five frame Saskatras nuke in an eight frame deep. I plan on doing all foundationless frames with comb guides in my second brood chamber, eight frame medium. So another option would be to checkerboard and has a lot of different ways, but all I'm gonna explain is when you wanna go foundationless and you're brand new to beekeeping, and for those who don't know what foundationless is, for Scott and others, um, it's just a wooden frame by itself. So it has no wax foundation, it doesn't have a plastic insert in it, and uh, you're relying on the bees to go ahead and just draw it out and naturally attach their comb to the interior surface of that wooden frame. 
So, and some people prime it with beeswax. Some people have a little V-shaped uh, piece of wood at the top, which creates a point, which serves as a guide to get the bees to draw that down. The critical thing, of course, is that that hive has to be level side to side. Absolutely level. Don't play games with that. And uh, then the bees will draw it out. Now, when you have multiple frames together, you can luck out, and the bees will draw all foundationless comb, run it right down, and they'll start, of course, in the middle, sometimes a little towards the warmer side, which for us is the eastern side. And then they'll start to fill them out. But one of the ways that I accelerate that is I do, it's called checkerboarding. So I'll put in a heavy wax comb. Uh, also, if it's a deep box, which is what we're describing here, and I want them to do it faster, uh, I'll put in better comb. So better comb is a uh, pre-drawn synthetic beeswax comb that for all practical, practical purposes acts like uh, regular beeswax comb. Uh, the bees can use it right away, but it serves as a guide. The back of the comb is marked better comb. And that's so that you know you really have a lab-produced synthetic beeswax, and then we're going to have natural beeswax. So since the long-term goal is to have nothing but foundationless 100% beeswax in those frames, you can start with better comb, and then and then you'll have the foundationless frame in there, and then another better comb, and then foundationless, and so on. And it serves as guides because they use bee space, and that pushes them towards the middle of that foundationless wooden frame to draw out their wax. And then as the years go by and seasons go by, you start eliminating the better comb. So you pull it out until now your new guides are the drawn honeycomb. And you can do this also with regular heavy waxed uh, plastic foundation and that serves as a guide. Then once you get what you need, use the 100% beeswax only, and then pretty soon you'll have a brood box of nothing but beeswax. Some people will comment that if you have foundationless beeswax in there, you won't be able to run that through a centrifugal extractor, tangential or radial extractor. That's true. They're likely to pull apart. What do you care? Here's why, <laughs> because in the brood box, you're never going to be harvesting that in your extractor anyway. It's brood. So your brood frames are dedicated to brood, which means they toughen up over the years anyway. As every season passes, as every brood cycle goes through them, those cells are stronger, they're more fibrous, they're tougher, and uh, they become used exclusively for brood. So these are never going in your extractor anyway. What do you care? The foundation and the ability to sustain the extraction process, if you're using you know, spinners and extractors that put centrifugal force on your hives, those are your supers. So those are usually the medium boxes. And that's when you can get into, yeah, I want to use some plastic foundation in that heavy wax and so on, because they have to endure those forces. But for the deep brood boxes, that's a good method to go. Better comb is sold by Better Bee. And now I think they sell it already in the frames, where before you had to wire the frames yourselves, you had to heat them up, melt the better comb into them, but I think they sell them as a unit for those of you who don't have time to do that and you want them done right. And uh, I still like it and I hold them in reserve in case I have a late season swarm or something that doesn't have time to build out their honey, build out their beeswax. 
and I need them to store honey right away and build fast because we're running out of time. Like in September, we're going to go into October. That's when I use better comb. <clears throat> but if we're in spring and everything's strong and there's a big buildup going on and we can put sugar syrup on, which helps them draw out the comb, then I wouldn't put it in there. So, and, uh, but keep an eye out for the wonky comb. And again, usually that happens because your hive's not level. Question number five comes from Anthony, Elkton, Virginia. Looking for some advice for our early spring. We have been having many days in the 50s and 60s with nights in the 30s and 40s. Now that's the key. Nights are still in the 30s and 40s. Upon quick inspection, I have some hives with four to five frames of brood. Some capped drone brood and a good amount of fresh nectar and pollen coming in. I wonder if I need to be splitting the large colonies earlier than April. Okay, so here's the thing. It can also, don't forget that this is an early warm-up that we're getting. You can't count on it. This time of year, it can still get cold and stay cold for an extended period of time. And I don't like the evening temperatures that we're describing here, 30s and 40s. Remember that in the days, so it says 50s and 60s, and you're watching the buildup, which is great. I wouldn't be splitting up any brood in this, uh, based on this description. I would be keeping it together. I would also uh, want to wait until you had lots of drones flying before I started doing splits, walkaway splits, things like that, where we're counting on queens to mature, fly out, and mate. So what we can do to keep them from swarming is stay ahead of it. And as, you know, because four or five frames of brood, if that becomes six or seven, and the rest of the frames in that deep box are filling, and it looks like they might start heading towards being honeybound or the population is wall-to-wall -wall bees, medium super, so super up. And uh, give them extra space to store resources and even expand the brood if they need to. Uh, because we're too early, remember that the brood temperatures are 94 degrees Fahrenheit to 97 degrees Fahrenheit, with the average being 95 degrees Fahrenheit. So when we think we're getting these warm days, 60s, let's say it even hit the 70s, um, what really matters too is what's going on environmentally as far as the resources being provided. Those are simulants for your colonies to reproduce. So it's not just, it's great that they're building up root. I've got this problem right now. I've got a monster. I've got a colony of bees that is building up so fast I don't understand why, and they weren't fed. I can't split it. Uh, the Long Langstroth Hive already has more than 20 frames in it. Uh, I don't know how big the brood is. The heat signature is big, and the amount of activity at the entrance is high, and that's here in the north. Now, would I, because they seem ahead and the temperatures seem to be warming, would I go ahead and split or divide them and create other colonies from them? I would not until the temperatures are predictably stable. Get an extended rain period on top of cold at night and they can't forage and things like that. You could have two very weak colonies instead of this one very strong colony. So I would keep them together and if you really needed to, if they're really filling up, um, I would add a super just to stay ahead of them and give them places to store their resources until your season arrives for splitting and for the Queens, of course, to get out and breed with healthy colonies. 
just my opinions, you know, as always, if there's somebody near you that has a lot of experience that says, well, I'm splitting now and you better do that too. And you trust them and they have a long-standing record of getting their colonies through winter and doing things at the right time and, you know, smelling the air and seeing the environment wake up and they say it's time, then you could probably go with them because I'm talking to you from another state. And when I look at the environment, it's not ready to support things, even though we have weird temperature swings. Moving on to question number six, Brandon Wees from Philadelphia, Missouri. Can you please explain why people do not graft eggs? If you want the youngest larvae, why wouldn't grafted eggs in cups work? I'm sure there's a reason, but I'm not making the connection. Okay, so... This is interesting to me, too, because um, it just seems natural that why not let those eggs hatch in queen cups? So why couldn't we transfer eggs to queen cups and then let them hatch and then be attended to? But when you look up the term grafting, it means that 99% of the time they're going to talk about grafting a recently hatched larva. And that's when they're fed. The minute they're hatched, they're fed. And that also... That royal jelly that gets put in there, which is the larval feed that comes from the nurse bees, uh, that's the sticky stuff that when you graft it allows you to stick it. And when you go to graft a larva, they have uh, already spiracles on their bodies, and that's how they're breathing. So when you're scooping up that little tiny larva there, you have to put it in exactly in the same position. You can't flip it like a pancake and put it in because the spiracles that it was breathing through would now be in the soup and you would drown your larva. So, but there is a method that you can use. It's not, it's kind of called grafting free uh, queen rearing. And it was the cover picture. And this is called the Nico system. So as you can see, it doesn't take a genius to look this over and realize, hey Fred, that doesn't look like it's been used. And you're right. It hasn't been. And that's because years ago I bought this uh, Nico queen egg, you know, grafting system. It's very simple in principle. A lot of people use it. So you might be wondering, well, if it's so simple and so outstanding and easy to use, why aren't you using it, Fred? Because uh, I don't need a million queens. <laughs> I just don't. Because you think down the road, okay, this is fun to do. It's great to make a video about it. And, uh, of course, the panel, I pulled it off. Here's a clear panel that goes on this on the back. And on the front side here, notice that it's all open. And it's so that worker bees can fit through these slats. But you would have a queen in here. And the queen would be laying her eggs in these little holes. And in these deep cells, you flip it around. On the back side, we have these cups here. These cups are removable. But if you notice, too... They're transparent. Now I can't show you that very well here, but you can see easily when they have eggs in the cups. So then when you find that there's eggs in here, so how long would you put your queen in this Nico queen cage? Well, for three days. You want to make sure and get them out of there before the eggs hatch, right? So before the larvae hatch out of their cells. So it looks like this, your queen is in here. She can move freely. There's a pass-through right here. The queen can move to this side, and she can be fed and attended to by all the nice worker nurse bees that are around. And then so you get that cup out of there with this. This pushes on and removes the cup with the egg in it. 
And now we have an egg in here. It is not hatched yet. And it goes again. This is an opening which comes with the whole Nico system. There's a plastic deal. And then you might be stopping me right now going, Fred, I don't want to see you sit there and just talk about this. Anybody could do that, right? So you want to see it work. Well, thank you for asking. But before I finish you, I want to just point out something that's kind of cool. So the egg's in there. It hatches. It's on your queen starter. You have queen starter colonies and you have queen finishing colonies. The starter colony gets this one. That is a colony of bees. It has no queen. So they want a queen really bad. So when a bunch of these show up and these are just eggs, the moment that egg hatches, that little larva releases a pheromone that says feed me. And because what's the position of that cell? Vertical. The only cells in a hive that are vertical are queen cells. So they immediately go to feeding royal jelly to that because they need a queen. They don't have one in the colony. And then when they build that out and it gets capped, so when the queen cell, because it's going to work perfect, you just know it's going to. And when they cap that, you put this, what people call hair rollers on there. And then you close it up. And this is so that when the queen hatches, when she emerges from her queen cell, she's in here in the little roller along with all the other queens. That's so they can't attack and kill each other, but they can be fed by the nurse bees through here. And now you have to put them out in a mating yard and so on. Do you see the complexity of it? Now, wouldn't it be cool if you could just see how that works? Well, that leads me to today's shout out. So what I did is I looked up, I looked on YouTube and I found somebody else who has, of course, done it step by step and shows it clearly so that you'll understand. So for those of you who don't want to wait and graft after the egg has hatched, if you don't want to graft larvae and you want to shift eggs around and put those in your starter colonies, here's the title of the video I'm recommending. I'll give you a microsecond to get your pen ready. It's a beginner's guide to the Nico method of queen rearing. That's the title of the video. And Nico is spelled N-I-C-O-T. The YouTube channel is the Norfolk Honey Company. So I already commented on that video. I think that video is like five years old, but it's a very good video. Still stands the test of time. And the link will be down in the video description if you can't find it. But again, I'll say the title is a beginner's guide to the Nico method of queen rearing, and it's by the Norfolk Honey Company. And I like the method, I do. I like the idea of having the queen put her eggs in these little plastic cells, which by the way, should have been worked over by your bees first for a while. So spray them with sugar syrup and all that so the bees clean them up and prep the cells before you ever put the queen in this cage, because there's an opening in the front, little cover right there. You put your queen that you know is a laying queen in there and then you put the cap on and then in the back too there's a cap that goes on here so she's stuck in there and then so she's laying eggs that we're going to use for queen rearing and it's a tidy system it's a very easy system you don't need to see the eggs other than to identify that they're in there you don't need steady hands like the hands of a surgeon so you don't have to play the operation game in preparation for doing this the queen places the egg the egg is already there everything gets moved without touching the egg, and then the queen take care of it. It's a perfect world. So say hello to the Norfolk Honey Company and watch the video if you're at all interested in that grafting-free method of queen rearing. See, it didn't take me long to figure out, looking down the line, I don't want 20, 30, 40 queens 
<clears throat> that need to be mated. I'm not in the business of what would you do with them? If you wanted to be a sideliner and you hatch a bunch of queens and then you finish off a bunch of queens and then they get mated, then they come back and they're mated. So there are mating nucleus hives, which are very small. And a lot of companies sell them. Better Bee sells mating nukes. I have them. I have all the stuff necessary to do it. I just don't want that many colonies of bees and I'm not in the business of selling bees. My business is providing information about bees. So if I did it, I would have to, of course, give away all the queens and, you know, just be rid of them because I don't want 100 colonies of bees or 200 colonies of bees. Now, on the flip side of that, if I were going commercial or I were a sideliner, which was interesting to me that the Bee Informed Partnership considers a sideliner, anyone with 500 colonies down to 50, and a hobbyist is 50 colonies or less. 500 colonies is a lot for someone that would be considered a sideliner, but that's what their statistics consider that to be. And then anyone over 500 colonies becomes commercial. So if you have 501 colonies, you're a commercial beekeeper. If you lose a bunch of bees through winter and you only have 410 now, that would be a good year, by the way, because the average loss rate is 30% of your hives here in the United States nationwide. Uh, now you're back to being a sideliner. So we're just crunching numbers. But I, if I were going to be commercial, I would have my own queen rearing operation. And I can tell you personally, the Nico system would be at the top of my list for how I expand my breeding operation. Okay, jumping into question number seven from Lynn from Sheffield, Pennsylvania. Is there an advantage to using two deep brood boxes as opposed to using three medium brood boxes? Is one method better? Okay, so I'm going to tell Lynn, uh, neither. For me, I use one deep brood box, and then I go with mediums above that. The reason I do that is because one deep box, one deep frame, generally contains two-thirds or three-quarters of the entire brood pattern. And you'll always have exceptions. Some may go a little higher than that. But uh, then I go to mediums, right? So then if we look at that, and if I did all mediums, so the bottom box is a medium, the second box is a medium, uh, now, 90% of the time, that brood pattern is going to fill both of the bottom two medium boxes. The reason I don't do that is because every time you pull them apart, you pull the brood in half. So it's very disruptive to the colony of your bees, where a deep brood box is less disruptive. And uh, even better, you know, the frames that are in the lands hives really cover the height of brood. But I noticed that the brood in the lands hive frames doesn't go all the way to the top. Seasonal. So it kind of moves about the size of a basketball. So that's why I don't use mediums. And I know that a lot of people can't lift the deeps. So they have to consider physical weight when they're dealing with brood boxes. Brood boxes tend to not weigh as much as, of course, honey supers. So there's that. There's a lot to consider. But two deeps, I do have two deeps in some cases, but that's because I had to combine colonies and the brood was always down in the deep boxes. So when I combined a queenless colony with one that was queen right, I had, of course, pull their brood box, which was a deep. I put that on another deep and I had newsprint in between and they joined together and they're all happy.
Now, that doesn't mean that later, after they've joined together and they become one colony, that I now pull off the second deep. I just leave it that way. So, but I don't have problems lifting them off. If you do, there are alternatives. If you ever needed to lift your boxes and you can't handle a full deep box, you can take, what am I going to mention? Those of you who watch me forever. Hive butlers. So you back your golf cart up there. I know you have them. And you have your hive butler on the back, so it's right at waist height. And you have your second brood box, which now is two-thirds full of honey because you're well into a nectar flow. And you need to get into that bottom brood box, but you can't lift that big honey super deep on your own. So now we pull out each frame and we put it in our hive butler tote. And you put them all in there, or as many as you need to take out, just until you can lift it, and then move that onto a solid platform. And then that allows you to now get into your deep brood box. So you can use totes and things like that to, you know, get it to a point where you can manage the weight that's in front of you. And with that in mind, and those of you who are thinking about hive equipment this year for the first time, if you're older, if you're retired, if you're not a arm wrestling champion, if you're not into fitness and lifting and your deltoids are lacking, here's what you might consider doing. Horizontal hives. I don't care if it's a lance. I don't care if it's a long langstroth. I don't care if it's a top bar hive. When you get into the horizontal hives, your lifting is done. Your maximum lift is to pull each frame. So the heaviest frame of all of those would be in the lay-ins hive. A lay-ins frame full of honey is hefty. So if you have finger grip strength, there are grippers. There's a the little mule frame grabber. There are a lot of gripping tools. And of course, the smallest of the three when it comes for frame lifting would be in the top bar hives. So there are lots of considerations. If you're thinking about, wow, when I'm really old and I still want to stay, I still want to be a beekeeper. I want to be able to manipulate and inspect and I want to pull honey and things like that. Lifting boxes should quickly find its way off your list of things you want to do. So the horizontal hives provide the easiest management of bees of any hive configuration. But Fred, you really mean to say that? What about the flow hive? You don't lift anything, you take the honey out the back. Oh, flow hives are heavy, man. So sometimes you have to lift your flow super off. And uh, that's heavy too. Wall to wall honey. So your lifting is not gone. Flow hive is a honey extraction method right at the hive. It's great. I love it. But if you are having problems lifting things, lower back issues, shoulder pain, forearm strain, carpal tunnel syndrome, uh, arthritis in your hands, you need to be thinking about easing things for yourselves and you can still manage your bees and you don't have to move your hives around. So I'm off my soapbox on that. So those are the reasons that uh, I know of. Question number eight comes from Bruce, Newport, Vermont. The Green Mountain State. So, longtime backyard beekeeper in California foothills with minimal wintering experience. I just moved to Canada on the border, but intend to be in a snowboard, <clears throat> a snowbird. I thought he was saying snowboarder. I intend to be a snowbird, gone from December 1 to April 1. I have watched many of your Q&A videos, so I understand the basics. Looking for a list of things that I may have not considered before leaving bees in the snow for four months. 
Okay, and there are things to consider. Number one, I would find a local beekeeping mentor or mentee. And uh, so if you've got contact Boy Scouts, they're always prepared for anything. Involve some Boy Scouts in your bee yard and let them know that you're going to be going away for wintertime and they would need to come and check on your hives from time to time. But let's say you don't have a Boy Scout. Let's say that everybody turns their back on you and you're not popular. You have no friends. Okay. So now you've put your hives in a good position, first of all. Hopefully we know a little bit about where the snow drifts, where snow gets deep, where the ground stays wet. We want to avoid those areas. We want to have some sheltered from the wind areas. We want to put our beehives in a place where they can stay year-round safely. Facing your hives to the south or southeast with your landing boards. Putting them in a position where winter sun hits your hives. Hits the face of the hives. Makes all the difference. Also, tilt your hives towards the landing board. Any moisture that drips inside the hive or on the hive should not be running into the hive or held in the back. It should run out the front. So, let's assume we've got that done. You want a hive stand that's solid because you're not going to be there. Winter storm comes through, heavy winds, blasts, gusts, things like that. You want your hive strapped down with shipping straps. Don't count on bricks and things like that on top of your hive. Raccoons can climb on your hive and push bricks off while they monkey around trying to see what's inside that beehive. So you need to think about things like that. Now the other thing is, bees might die at your entrance and block it up. Some beekeepers will take their entrance reducers and they will turn them upside down, which gives you a little space for your bees inside to climb over the dead on a day when they need a cleansing flight, when it warms up a little bit, and out they can go. Now, Sometimes there are piles of bees collecting on the bottom board that your cleaner bees, your undertakers, cannot drag out and toss in the snow because it's 22 degrees Fahrenheit outside. So you need an entrance that's a little higher than that. And that's why here's what I'm going to recommend. I drilled this hole just for this answer today. This is a slatted rack. Do you need a slatted rack? No. Are they nice to have? Yeah, for a lot of reasons. One is they create additional space between the landing board, which goes underneath of it, and your deep brood box, which sits on top of it. Look what's here, a nice solid piece. This should be the part towards the landing board. This prevents winter air from blowing in here and jamming and blowing right up into your brood in the wintertime because this is the wall that faces south. This is the wall that warms up. This is the east side. So your cluster sometimes move to, moves towards the warm sides. Now what happens? Bees that die inside, they can't get outside, they'll pile up on this board right here. In fact, that's what's happened on this hive several times. Now underneath of it, look what I've done. I've drilled a hole right here. So now you're three quarters inch up off the landing board. And even with your entrance reducer upside down, let's say the bees die and pile up to that, this gives you another hole a little above that, that if your bees need to make cleansing flights, they still get out and they're not trapped inside. What's the diameter of that hole? What's bee space? Three-eighths of an inch. So if you do that, you'll provide an upper a little upper entrance now that your bees can get in and out of and they won't be trapped by the dead bee bodies that are there. So that 
that slatted rack provides a shelf that collects dead bees that later they can deal with. But it kept them above that entrance that we drilled underneath, which is three inch, three eighths. Why three eighths and not a half? Or why not five eighths? Because we also don't want to make a hole that a shrew or a mouse can get through. So if you keep it at three eighths, which happens to be bee space, bees can get through it and bees can be going in and coming out together in that diameter hole. And uh, rodents and mice won't get in there because you're not going to be there to deal with those either. And you won't have to put a mouse guard on it. See what I'm saying? So that's what I would do. However, the very best thing you can do is find someone that cares about bees that you can shame into uh, making sure that they're going to check in on your bees for you. You know, you can hit them up with things like, do you care about pollinators? Do you want them to die in winter? Wouldn't you like to help somebody out to make sure their pollinators live? And all they would be doing is showing up to make sure the lightning board's clear, that your hive hasn't fallen off in the snow. And that's another reason why you need to put shipping straps on your hives. Because if they do fall over, they're still self-contained. Colonies will even survive on their side if they fall over. As long as the boxes don't come apart. And uh, so shipping straps worth their weight in gold because it happened to me this year. I had one hive fall over due to frost heave and heavy rains and winds. And uh, all I had to do is tip it right side up again because I had a shipping strap on it. Okay, question number nine. Rob from South Jordan, Utah. I'm having a hard time trying to find a screened bottom board with a tray and enclosed. Have you found any supplier or plans for a design that you're describing? Yes. I have a website. It's called thewaytobe.org. Now, on that website, there's a page and it says, Prints for You. And that shows my long Langstroth design. It shows my standard Langstroth preferred design. It's not that I invented the Langstroth. It's how I modify it to suit my needs here in the state of Pennsylvania. And if you go to this page and you look at prints, whenever prints and drawings are updated, the drawings on that page also get updated. So my technical illustrator is Ross Millard. He is doing all that work for those drawings. And it shows you the bottom board by itself, how it's configured with, and we use cafeteria trays because they're dirt cheap, they're easy to find. You get them on Amazon or wherever you buy cafeteria supplies but those cafeteria trays are fantastic and uh, it's an enclosed screened bottom board we also have enclosed screened options for the long langstroth hive all those prints are free all those prints are free to use there's a guideline for people that want to build that stuff and i agree there aren't a lot of people selling them so um if you know somebody that can do the work or maybe you can find a you know, a bottom board that's already solid, or is a screen bottom board that's deep enough that you can modify to add the enclosed part and put that cafeteria tray in there. But again, they're on the way to be website. The page is titled Prints for You. They're PDFs. You can download them. You can print them out. You can build them. I had people asking me that were at the Hive Life conference. They were looking at the observation hives that I spec'd out for horizontal bees. Um, and they were asking, oh, would it be okay if maybe we built one? Absolutely. Anything that I recommend from high visors to any modification that I make, these are not proprietary. I don't control them. I'm just modifying hives that I think would give your bees the best chance to make it through all four seasons. Uh, 
And then I put them there for general consumption. There's no restriction. It costs you nothing. Now, it does remind me that if you wanted to buy me a pizza or a cappuccino, there's a donation button there. If you, you know, if you really felt driven, you know, to donate something, to ease your conscience, maybe you got a bunch of free stuff there and you printed it out and you pieced it so well, and just to ease your conscience, you wanted to make sure that, that I had a, you know, a supreme pizza, thin crust, uh, medium, not, not even a large, just, just the medium. So that would be, that would be a really nice thank you. But yes, to answer Rob, in South Jordan, Utah, all the prints are there, they're available. These aren't complicated, it's easy, easy to build. But uh, again, they're not inventions, these are just modifications that we make to beehives that make things work a little better. It even describes the stands I use and uh, the trade names that maybe they're made by somebody else and you can go find those. So they're not even affiliate links in there. You can just go find the stuff you need. Moving on to question 10. Peter from Mundaring, Western Australia. Did I pronounce that right? Mundaring, Mundaring, Mundaring. Okay. When you make a split, how far do you need to move the new box from the original hive? to ensure foragers do not go back to the original hive. Okay, backyard beekeepers. So we don't have a bunch of out yards. I have, I have what I call an out yard, but it's really just my son's backyard and his neighbor. We won over the neighbor. So neighbor Dave, who has hives in his backyard too. And that lets me look at hives and see what's going on in another part of our neck of the woods. But if you just have one hive or one apiary and several hives in your own backyard and you want to make splits, do you need to haul them away to somewhere else entirely to keep them from migrating back to the hive they came from? No. Uh, I do it right in my own backyard. I make a split when I see a colony getting really strong, especially if I start to see queen cells being built. So when you see the queen cells under construction, so there's a queen cup sometimes, which is just a little beeswax buildup that is facing down. Remember, only queen cells are going to face down. They're perpendicular to the face of the comb. And when they have those, but there's no egg in them, no big deal. But if there's a cup that's being drawn out and there is an egg in it, now it's queen cell. Now they're building. They are going to swarm. That's their plan. So now you need to find your queen. Here's why I say find the queen. Now you could, if you just split the colony, you can create a split and leave the, the queen there but that means she's still gonna swarm. So here's what I like to do. Remember, they're building queen cups. Now, wouldn't I just go in there and smash all those queen cups and make sure that they don't, or the queen cells and make sure that they don't finish and then of course produce new queens? No, I don't mind them producing new queens, but I wanna get that queen out and create a forced swarm. So that's what a walkaway split really is. So I set up another hive box right next to them. And the hive box that is set up right next to them it's already full, so it's a 10 frame deep, and the ones I'm pulling from, they're a 10 frame deep. Uh, or better yet, a five frame nucleus hive. If you have a wooden one, I highly recommend the wooden nucleus hives for making splits. Makes no difference, it will work either way, but the nucleus hive size, I find, works faster for them. So anyway, it will have a full complement of frames in it, because every frame that I pull out of here, when I pull out a brood frame, and I put it in here to make my split, I need to replace it. But am I gonna take that empty frame and put it right exactly where I pulled the brood out and put it over here? No, I don't wanna split the brood. 
So if I see that they've got five or six frames of wall-to-wall -wall brood, uh, if I pull a frame out of the middle, and if it's the frame that has the queen on it, if she's there and she's laying eggs, that's the frame I'm pulling, that's my new hive. So it goes right into the nucleus. Now I have the queen. Whew! Everything is easy going now. So then I push the frames together and I pull another frame. And I don't shake the bees off. I bring those nurse bees right along with it. So now I created my new hive with the queen with two or three frames of solid brood. Now the remaining brood frames that are in the box that I pulled them from, I push them together. The outer frames that are partially full now of nectar and they've got pollen stored in them and things like that, I push those together too. The new frames, my replacement frames, are the outboard most frames. So they are the farthest away from the brood. So I've not split the brood. And the reason for that is that the bees use their own bodies to keep those areas warm. And if we put an empty frame in between the brood, we just created two surfaces and an entire frame that now they have to warm and attend to just to keep their brood, the brood alive that's residual in there. And uh, we created a very taxing situation for them at a time when we're removing a bunch of their workforce with those bees. We're taking the nurse bees out. So we push those all together, and now we've got three frames of brood here, and we've hopefully got three frames of brood left. You could still make it with two and a half or something like that. Push those all together, fill the outer frames, close up that box. Now, the one that's moving is, of course, the one that's got the queen in it with all the nurse bees and the brood that we transferred. Now, if you've got a frame of solid capped honey, that would be a nice thing also to steal from the parent colony and insert in there on the outside of your brood frames. So now you're gonna move that box over 30 feet away, 40 feet away, doesn't really matter. Here's what's gonna happen now. What did we just create? We have the home advantage colony that has the brood in it that we just took all the brood out of and we've got two or three frames or two and a half frames of brood left. We've got their resources and they probably have honey above them too, at least one medium super. Now what happens is drift. Uh, bees will move in there but here's the thing. The foragers that are in there remember their resources and remember where they live. So when they go out they get their resources, they come back and they're really good at bringing that back. Foragers that are in the colony that you just made up will likely leave that colony if they didn't already. So the next day when things warm up, the best time, by the way, to be doing this is in the middle of the afternoon. We want a lot of nurse bees in there. We want as many foragers out as we can. We also want to do this on a nice hot day without a lot of wind, if you can, if you can manage it. So once you've made that, uh, the foragers are going to be heading out of there. They're going to be losing foragers because they're gonna go back to the original colony that they left because that's just the way their memory works. There's another thing that happens to the hive that a lot of people don't talk about. The hive that you took them from is now queenless, which means their pheromone is reduced. The queen mandibular pheromone strength in that colony is down. And here's what I've learned over the years, that the foragers that are leaving that colony now, if they come across another colony that has a queen mandibular pheromone that's really strong, if there's a bunch of bees on the landing board putting out that nisenhoff gland and they're venting into the air to make sure that they're new um, orientating bees, so brand new bees that are flying out doing orientation flights get drawn back by that pheromone. Uh, there are foragers that will just be flying by, smell that pheromone, oh look, I've got a bunch of pollen, I've got a bunch of you know nectar with me, and they'll go to the colony, 
because it's queen right. The colony they left is not queen right. So even though we get a lot of their foragers back, some of them start to just drift to other colonies. And people that count drifting bees have realized that up to 20% of a colony in the same apiary, or even another apiary far away, a thousand yards away or more, uh, can have up to 20% uh, foreign workers just joining them. And I've learned this myself by watching the way they react to queen mandibular pheromone with unrelated workers just joining in because they happen to fly through the pheromone stream. So there's a lot of shifting and changing going on. So both colonies are technically weak. So we should be doing what for them? Feeding them. And what would we be feeding? Sugar syrup. We'll feed them the carbohydrates because I want their reproduction to be based on the pollen that they're bringing in. So I don't use pollen patties and things like that. Uh, this is a non-commercial backyard apiary. And you're going to find out that uh, they do really well. I was, I've been very successful doing this over the past few years. And uh, it's how I end up with too many bees. So <laughs> that will work. And that method that I just described, it's critical not to split up your brood. So push them together other than obviously you're removing brood. And capped brood is going to be emerging. And that's your workforce. And there's thousands of them. Think about it. How big would a colony be? They've, the people that do the studies realize that you're really, for a eusocial uh, insect to make it, you need at least 5,000 bees, and that means that they can handle a division of labor. So 5,000 bees is enough to have nurse bees working, wax builders building wax, guard bees at the landing board, uh, all the jobs that need to be done, and foragers going out and coming back. When those numbers drop well below that, they have a much bigger challenge ahead of themselves to keep the colony warm, clean, queen-fed, protected. All of these things have to happen. 5,000 is the magic number. So if you have one frame, deep frame, with both sides capped, you have more than 5,000 bees coming out of that frame eventually. So when we have three, we have more than enough. In the residual colony, we have two and a half, let's say. Real strong colony, you might have three and three. You're all set. You're good to go. So the colonies would have the numbers that they need, even considering the potential for drift. And that's why I went the long way around the barn to explain to Peter, not a problem. Keep them right in the same apiary where you can sit and watch them and see how they're doing. And just watch the pollen come in. And of course, document everything in your records so that you know what you did when and when you should expect to see a, you know, a queen emerging from her queen cells. The multiple queens coming out, you'll hear queen piping if things are quiet someday and you're out there by your bees. Story for another day. Question number 11. Let's jump right in with Chris from Beaverton, Oregon. Says, how do you document information specific to each hive and what information do you maintain? This may include evidence of disease, treatment dates, cluster size, temperament, requeening, swarming events, and other notable data. Do you use a standardized form or document notes freehand in a notebook? Some beekeepers make notes on the hive roof, place a tag on the hive body, or keep a notebook. It would be very helpful if you could provide some examples, methods to maintain this information, and where to obtain standardized documents for this purpose. That's a very good question, Chris. I have an answer for you. Because that's, I mean, what would be the point if I didn't do answers? This is my notebook. Look how clean it is. 
How much time do you think this notebook has spent out in the apiary? None, and here's why. This is a mead notebook, you get them anywhere. Look, it's got the loose leaf stuff. The very first thing on it, of course, is my apiary license. Covered my address, because I don't need people showing up here. Um, but I keep a lot of things in this notebook, so let's talk about record keeping. Uh, the notebook is best. I've looked, and I'm not interested in, and I'm sorry if you're one of the publishers of a B-log, uh, I can't think of a reason to buy a B-log that's being sold on Amazon, for example. I looked. I looked today to see what's out there. Here's also what I buy. Student assignment books, right? These are just blank books. Student assignment books are good because they have project pages in them. I don't know what I want to show you as far as what I do, but instead of assignments, you would have uh, beehive information. So you can do sketches of your layout. You can do documents. Look how clean this is, by the way. Again, there's a reason why I'm mentioning that all these pages are super clean because anything that gets into your beehives gets sticky and messy. And uh, keeping control of your documents under those conditions is not good. So here's what I want you to know. If you just do a Google search, you're going to find hive inspection sheets published by a lot of different companies and educational institutions. And guess what? They're free. That's why I say don't buy the books. Find the one that works best for you, that has the information that you like. A lot of the things that were mentioned in the question. Uh, because just this one right here, and this comes from, I need to make sure that the credit goes to the people that published it. This document was developed for small-scale beekeepers. That would be us in Central Florida by the Kissimmee Valley Beekeepers Association. And this one was updated March 7th of 2019. So thank you to those people for making all of their stuff available online. You can print them. So all you need is to find the one that you like, download it, assuming that they say that that's okay, printing them out on the stock paper that you want, and then get yourself something like, this is a three-ring binder. Get yourself a three-hole punch. And here's another hive inspection sheet right here. This one comes from Man Lake. It's really cool. It has a lot of, of course, options for things that you can fill out. And again, when I fill out these papers, I know some people, it, it is a fun thing to do. If you want to sit out there and observe and sit in your lawn chair and drink your coffee or whatever you have and uh, make observations, make notes. But uh, I recommend too that you can use your phone. Most cell phones, smartphones have voice recorder apps. And if you don't have an app, you can download one. Uh, there are also voice activated recorders that are really tiny. Most bee suits, if you wear a bee suit when you're doing your inspections, go into a uh, pocket on your arm and when you start talking, the voice-activated part kicks in and it records your voice. Not only that, they have date and timestamps on them. So the key to each hive, I don't care if you have two hives, one hive, 20 hives, each hive needs a unique identification number. And if you look at my videos, I get asked this question a lot. Fred, what are, your, what are the tags that you have in your hive? They look fancy, they're brass, and they have numbers on them. And that's right, every one of my hives has a brass tag on it with a number. Do you know what those are? 
Those are valve tags, and they're made out of solid brass. And uh, you can hot glue them to the side of your hive if you want to, and they each have a hole because they're supposed to have a little wire ring that goes on the valve stem for the valves. But uh, you can put those right on the front of your hives, and they go all the way up to number 265 or something like that. I bought them on Amazon. And uh, those are real easy because now if I had a voice recorder and I'm sitting there looking at a hive or I'm going to go through it, if you wear gloves or you're wearing nitrile gloves or you're getting sticky and things like that, it's much easier to talk. Nobody wants to pull a frame and say frame number 17. So here's the other thing. Identify your frames so you can write on the back of the frame, you know, 1 through 10, whatever it is, whatever the code is that you decide to assign. And that lets you do a lot of things. One is you're going to keep them in order because I think it's very important that your frames be put back in the same order and orientation that they were in when you started to do your inspection. Putting them back that way stresses the bees less. So you'll be able to say, you know, hive 23, it's a Langstroth hive. We have a deep and a medium and the medium's light right now. Lots of pollen coming through. And when you say things like pollen coming through, how many per minute? 10 per minute, 15, 20 per minute. So, and the time of day is important. So when you're looking at the different hives, 2 p.m., March the 3rd, um, this is what's going on with this hive. Look at the ground in front of the hive. Are there bees dead on the ground? Are they crawling? Is there grass in front of your hive? And if there is, is it disturbed? Does it look like you have a predator? Grass is pressed down, you know, star date, 52, whatever, you know, like they used to do on Star Trek or whatever. And uh, they would start saying, hive number 27, grass pushed down, mud, possible skunk eating bees in front of this hive. So you get to note all these different conditions. That another hive might be tilting. So you know that later you're going to get your work list out of this and you're going to come back. Or you're going to assign it to your grandkids and they're going to be out there leveling things up and doing the punch list that you set up for them to do as they get older. I'm thinking ahead for my grandsons and the work that they're going to be doing for me while I drink my cappuccino in the future. So talking into a voice recorder, it's digital, so nothing is consumed. And then once you get back in your house and it's all nice and warm, or maybe the next rainy day comes along, that's when you open up your book, you pull out your voice recorder, you hit play, and you have the timestamp, and now you go to Hive 27 and you pull the sheet out, and uh, it has the very first thing. Hive ID, yard number, type of hive. There are digital programs, okay? So I have a digital hive inspection program. It's called Beekeep Pal. And I use that on my phone, but I have to tell you, and they probably won't be happy to hear me say that, I would much rather write my findings down, make sketches in my three ring binder, um, and of course have this paper trail, have this record. And then later as years go by, this is also where if you buy hive equipment and you get receipts. So all the expenses that you have for your beekeeping, those receipts go in the pockets. If you buy queens from somebody or you buy a package of bees from someone, uh, all that documentation, what it costs you, what your investment has been, this will give you that grim truth that the amount of money that you have spent to set up your beekeeping operation and your operation costs and then uh, what you're actually earning from your hives. If you're a backyard beekeeper, you're going to find out that uh, the stuff that you're getting out of your bees is not going to be a big profit, but rather 
the satisfaction of seeing living bees doing well. For me, that's the goal and that's the payoff. To learn something new about bees, wow, that's interesting. So you'd have a big category, maybe a blank sheet. In the Navy, we call it a QA Form 21, <clears throat> which I really liked because it meant that you could draw anything you wanted and make any notes that you wanted to make and get really artistic with it. And so that's like with your beekeeping. Have some blank sheets in there that you can make sketches. Maybe you had an idea. You saw a problem. You saw something that your bees were doing or that the hive wasn't doing that you thought it should. Now you can jot down your ideas, you know, note to self. Put a hive visor on there. Now the bees will be able to go up and hang out under the hive visor instead of bearding down below where the skunks can come and play handball with them. See what I'm saying? This is a great thing. Document that stuff, but you don't need to buy a book. Get a three ring binder, just like any school student. The kind that zip shut are great because now you can loose leaf papers in there and things like that, articles, stuff like that. Another reason that your cell phone is really good, I was talking about this with uh, Mr. Flotum, Kim Flotum, two days ago. Um, he likes to take pictures with his cell phone because he's like me. I don't care about my cell phone except as a camera or a piece of video equipment. So when you're pulling up frames of a specific hive, then uh, you take pictures of the frame and then you can see the progress next time you look at that. What did the brood pattern look like then? Oh, frame number four didn't have any brood on it. Now it's three quarters full, they're expanding. So there are a lot of things, photographing your queens, making sure, get a really close shot of the queens. Cell phones are fantastic. Also, if you see a condition that you don't know about, that you don't understand, get a photo, a close up of that brood and this becomes your record too. So there's digital records. There's so many options that this, there is no one size fits all. I do enjoy sitting down and going through my three ring binder and documenting because it lets us see through the years. You don't know how long you're gonna be doing this. The average backyard beekeeper, according to statistics, has five years of experience with beekeeping. Uh, most beekeepers uh, are of course quitting by their third year. And that's because third year is where the magic kind of wears off because at the end of the third year, they've accumulated pesticide loads in the hives. The varroa mites have had a chance to build up season after season. Brood disease has had a chance to manifest itself. And that's where we can go from feeling super confident and happy about our abilities in beekeeping and then on the third year find out, whoa, 70% of my bees are dead. Too depressing, I'm quitting them out of here. So that's kind of the cut. And then so the five-year beekeeper is where they really are in a rhythm by then. And then they've really started to document and they really started to understand how to make gains and how to make sure that their bees are going to do well. And so you get more rounded as a beekeeper because the fundamentals are better established. And it's fun to look back and see what you started with and where you're at today and what kind of, and I mean this, track your investments, see how much you're really spending on stuff. I'm personally terrible at uh, spending more than, than you will ever gain. But if you're talking about emotional well-being and uh, what you're going to get out of beekeeping, there is something to beekeeping that, uh, now let's face it, there are people that are terrified of insects. There are some people that you tell them, yeah, bees in your backyard, they will never come to your house. It's just like putting up a picture of a jumping spider on Facebook and watching your friend count go down. 
there are people that don't like nature. That, you know, they love nature. They just don't want to get any of it on them, as the quote goes. But uh, what you can get out of beekeeping is emotional health and well-being. It gets you out of yourself. You become hypnotized by your bees. You can sit there. Beekeepers, I'm sure you can't even count the beekeepers that just go out in their yard for 10 minutes, and two hours later, they're taking a nap. And uh, they're just comfortable in the environment. Once they know about the bees, you're only stressed and afraid of the things you don't know about. So the more you learn, the more confident you are, the better it's going to be when you're around your honeybees. And so keeping notes is a great way to track progress. What else did I write down here? So dictations on a voice recorder, phone photos, unique ID numbers. I think that pretty much covered it. You don't need to buy a bee log. Three ring binder, find the one. And then that lets you know if you have a sheet that's not doing what you need it to do, find another one from somewhere else. They've all made them available. Government agencies, agriculture groups, extension offices, if they've got inspection forms, those are state funded. Those are tax dollar funded. So they give you those forms for free. I don't know if they give them to you on paper, but definitely you can, you can print them without restrictions. So that's pretty much it for me today. And uh, don't get too confident. Don't jump in there and start um, splitting things and thinking that summer is here. Uh, really look at the norms. Make friends with the, the meteorologists that know what the trends are and what things are looking like. I know that the cherry blossoms in Washington, D.C., which draw crowds, are three weeks ahead of time. So people that plan their vacations a year ahead for that. They're going to be very unhappy. One of the things, well, this is just a fluff part now, so I'm just thinking out loud. One of the things I noticed is like the Today Show, Good Morning America, all this stuff. They show the cherry blossoms, the Blossom Festival and all that. I don't see bees on those blossoms. Is there anybody, anybody watching that's in or near Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, that area where they go to that? Do you see honeybees on those cherry trees? I mean, I hope there are, but I don't see them. I know that there's an official White House beekeeper. That's kind of an interesting job. <clears throat> that would be a fun person to interview, by the way. Oh, yeah, so part of the fluff, too. I did an interview during the past week with a representative of the Be Informed Partnership. So if you want to visit my interview page, which is also on thewaytobe.org, interviews you can listen to or watch because it's also a podcast. Uh, very interesting stuff because they identify trends across the United States with uh, how people are keeping bees and what they derive from that are best practices for beekeepers. So that's statistically based on what things have worked the best. And there are interesting trends and changes in backyard beekeeping. So that's about it for me today. Uh, and as I mentioned before, I'll leave you with just a bunch of video sequences of... Uh, what was going on this week out in the bee yard. So you can see that they're bringing in pollen, that they're flying, that they're healthy, and things are looking good this year. So my losses are two colonies out of 22, which is leaving me with more bees than I need, but that doesn't mean I'm wanting to give them all away. So don't send me a bunch of emails saying, I'll take those bees because I'm also selfish about the bees. So I have mentees that I probably should help out with my surplus bees. Thanks a lot for being here. Thanks for listening. If you're listening on Podbean, the way to be, 
and uh, for sticking it out with me through all of these years of beekeeping and sharing about bees. Have a fantastic weekend. So now let's take a look at the bonus round here. The video sequences that we're looking at are from the 1st of March. As I mentioned before, it hit the 50s. So it was right around 50, 51 degrees Fahrenheit. This is in the afternoon and the bees were flying everywhere. This is the way to be Academy building. All three observation hives are flying. And that's great news because this building's not heated. This is the south wall, and if you look at the roof line, there are windows along that. So at 50 degrees on the outside, that building was 70 degrees Fahrenheit on the inside. And this is one of the tags, number 16 there. So we use valve tags on the hives to give them each a unique number. This is one of the Lands hives that I bought from Leo Sharashkin's website. Insulated, of course, with sheepskin. Made it through winter, looking great. This colony was so strong during the summer we had to split it. We're gonna see the split colony too. This is my westernmost colony, fully exposed to strong winds and everything else. It's on iron T-post with metal electrical conduit supporting it 18 inches off the ground. Look at the bottom board. It's kind of coming apart, but the colony is strong. These are my resource hives. We have three of these. They are nucleus hives, five frames each, and they are three tall, so that's 15 frames. No food, no extra resources. Not even Hive Alive fondant. These colonies just have the honey that they stored, so the top five frames, deeps, were capped wall to wall with honey going into winter, and by the look of it, they have plenty left. So we have three of these set up. We're going to expand the resource hives going into uh, this summer. So if I do splits in spring, we'll be putting them into these. And again, you can see the brass tags there. That's what I mean by giving each hive, no matter what its configuration is, a unique identification number for your records. The bees are healthy looking and we know that they're brooding up because pollen's coming in. The good news too is when we look at the pollen, it's different colors so it's not all one pollen source diversity of diet is key here we are at the good old long langstroth hive historically i haven't had good luck with this going through winters but this year we put double bubble in the top and we used it as a gasket seal when we closed the cover i'm not saying that's the only reason that these made it through but the additional insulation on the top of this hive seems to have translated into them coming through using very few of their honey resources and a large brood area. We've yet to open this up and doing any kind of inspecting because it's just too cold for that. But if the activity at the landing board and the entrance is any indicator, as well as the thermal scan that showed that they're occupying probably four frames brood-wise, these are all deep Langstroth frames this colony is a success. If you look at that little circle that's on the front there, that is hot glue. 
I pulled away one of the little wooden upright pieces that are on there. If you're using hot glue on the face of a hive like this, you can attach temporary blocks for the dead of winter, for example, if you wanted to. Because remember, all my other hives have 3 8 inch openings with a maximum of 3 inches in width. This one had a half inch, 6 inch long opening through the 2x4 material that it's composed of. And it faces, of course, the south wall. And up above it has a little copper flashing piece nailed on there that acts as a shade. And that's more for summer than winter. So look at all the pollen that's coming in. This is in slow motion, of course. And again, they're bringing in different colors of pollen. So that's great. And they're bringing it in at a rate of 15 to 18 loads per minute. So that tells me this is going to be a colony to watch. Probably one of the first colonies I inspect when spring really gets here. And this is the second lands hive I purchased, also from Horizontal Bee. Horizontalhive.com, I believe, is Dr. Leo's website. Now this is a split that I took off of the other lands hive that has the paintings on it. And I did this kind of as an emergency because I ran out of room in the other one. And again, these were not fed, so no supplemental feeding, not even Hive Alive fondant on any of the horizontal hives. Just the honey that they stored. And they're all looking very strong. So I can't say I have any complaints so far. And being that we're at March 3rd now, even with the rain, wind, and uh, kind of poor weather that we're getting now, I think they all have plenty of resources still. All of the Langstroth hives, the vertical versions, um, had hive alive fondant on them. None of the horizontal hives had that, and none of the nucleus hives had that. The observation hives, one out of the three had supplemental feeding, and the one with supplemental feeding did not do better than those that were left with just their honey alone. So we're getting lots of trends here. We have a guard bee there. So they are postured to protect themselves. Keep in mind on these warm days, you might be tempted to pull off your entrance reducers and open them wide up so they can get maximum traffic through the hive entrances. But also I'd like you to know that the stronger colonies like this one will turn into robber colonies. So please don't be tempted to open up your entrances or landing zones too soon. If you do that, you risk robbing. Now the observation hives have also given me an opportunity to see if they're bringing in nectar as well as pollen. And they are. And the way we know that is those are cells that are not capped and they're loading in shiny nectar into those, which of course is on its way to becoming honey. But they'll also consume that first. Look at this. Langstroth hive. Very busy. This is a hive that was so strong last year that we pulled lots of them out of it and... Uh, I made them requeen themselves, and that was the same hive that had the drone rush that we used in videos to show that when drones come back by the hundreds that a mated queen has just returned and they followed her to the hive. So, that's it. Have a great weekend.